Welcome to Surviving Society. A political podcast. Exploring the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective. In conversation with academics and activists, researchers and artists. We platform discussions between knowledge sharers, creatives and intellectuals, and change makers. Our mission is clear. Political education for the masses. Grounded in history, theory and practice. Enjoy the episode and please do share with your networks. This is a trigger warning to let you guys know that this episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people might find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society Presents the Housing Series. In this episode, I am joined here today with one of the producers of the series, Dan Rennick, and a guest for this episode, Peter Apps. Before I introduce Dan and Peter, I'm just going to introduce the topic of the episode. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, the Grenfell Tower fire. For any listeners that don't know about Grenfell Tower, the Grenfell Tower fire, it happened on the 14th of June 2017. It was a high-rise fire which broke out on a 24-storey tower tower block of flats in North Kensington, London. It burnt for 60 hours. 72 people have died as a result of the night. So my colleague, friend, comrade, all the above sat next to me here is Dan Rennick, Surviving Society alumni, of course. Dan has been on the show basically every year since the fire happened, basically, to give our listeners and give us a kind of update on what has happened um, since the fire in terms of justice, in terms of policy, in terms of uncovering how it happened and what has been happening on the ground, what has been happening um, on a governmental basis as well. Um, But yeah, just as a reminder, Dan is amazing, but he's also a videographer, writer, campaigner and photographer. And his first book, which I have read and was lucky enough to review, came out at the end of 2022 and it was titled Squalor. Um, You can see it in the episode notes with Robbie Shilliam. And it's about the legacies of housing and the beverage report in Britain. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Thank you. All the thank yous. It's all love in the room today. I can feel it, even though we're talking about something very serious. Peter, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. So just to give Peter his introduction, Peter is an award-winning journalist and deputy editor at Inside Housing. He broke a story on the dangers of combustible cladding 34 days before the Grenfell Tower fire. Peter has recently published a book titled Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. And I think what's really important about Pete's credentials is Pete has probably been the number one journalist on relentlessly reporting on the Grenfell Tower fire and the Cladden scandal. I don't like using words like scandal because I feel like sometimes it does that kind of political football thing that we've been talking about in our pre-chat. Maybe we'll get into that. But Peter's just been doing proper civil civil society work like I know I don't I'm not going to big you up too much because I'm sure you'll get embarrassed but like it's it's so incredible the way you have reported and kept going on this stuff and I think there's so many people that are so grateful for your work it's a public service a hundred percent but yeah so thank you so much um for coming on the show today 
Oh, thanks for inviting me and thanks for that introduction. You're right. It does embarrass me a little bit, but I still appreciate I it. I saw your little face. I was like, oh, I better not, I better not hype him too much. But yeah. it's, it's all love here. Anyway, Dan, you're going to be leading. So, so my role today, these two are very much experts on what has happened. And my role today is to effectively be the general public that know the headlines but don't understand the detail. And as we know, with state crimes, with corporate, um, particularly corporate crimes as well, the devil is in the detail. It's all about the details. So it's so important to have conversations like this with people like you. So, yeah, Dan, over to you. Thank you very much. So, Pete, I mean, Grenfell was preventable, right? And there were fires that foretold it. But I think the major one that you begin showing me the bodies with is Lacknor. So could you just talk us a little bit through what the overlaps were and what government and regulators and industry missed? Yeah, sure. So... Blackrow House was uh, or is a tower block in South East London in Camberwell. It's a council housing block. It's owned by Southwark Council. In 2009, there was a fire there. It was in the middle of the day. It started in a television. Um, so it was an electrical fire, same as Grenfell, which started in a, in a fridge freezer. Like at Grenfell, the fire got quite serious, got out of control in the flat where it started, it broke out of the window and then ignited some combustible panels on the outside of the building. They're a different material to, to the ones on Renfrew Tower, but the point is they burn really fiercely once they'd started to burn and they took the fire really quickly up the outside of the building. Exactly the same as, as what happened at Grenfell Tower. You saw people who were above the fire phoning the fire brigade and telling them that their flats were starting to fill with smoke and things were starting to catch fire. And instead of listening to that and telling them to get out of the building as quickly as they could. Call handlers thought that this was a fire in one flat, that it can't possibly have spread up the outside of the building because that doesn't happen in flats in the UK. And so they told them to stay put. Within a few hours, the fire killed a woman in her 20s and um, two mothers and their three children. So so six people died. After the fire, it became apparent that... Um, the block had been mismanaged in a similar way to, to Grenfell Tower. There were really serious problems with the kind of internal fire safety things you have to put into a building to, to make sure that smoke and, and fire doesn't spread through the inside of a building um, had all been either compromised by refurbishment work or not maintained properly. Um, and so whole corridors were, were filling up with smoke really fast. So when people opened their flat doors, they didn't think that they could get out. And so they closed them again and waited. And it wasn't as serious as Grenfell Tower because the, the cladding on the outside wasn't as extensive. It was just sort of panels below windows, not a whole kind of wraparound system like it was at Grenfell. And also because it didn't happen in the middle of the night, it happened in the daytime. So everyone was awake. A lot of people were out of work. A lot of children were at school. Um, so it wasn't, it didn't have the capability to get so, uh, for so many people to be trapped. Um, but what it showed us is that buildings in the uk could have a fire like that and we needed to investigate to see whether or not there were other buildings with that kind of dangerous combustible material on the outside we needed to change building regulations to make sure that more stuff like that didn't get added and we also needed to work out a fire safety firefighting strategy so that people weren't given that wrong advice when a fire started to get out of control firefighters knew what to do and knew, knew to expect that sort of unusual fire behavior at high rise and you know cutting quite a long story short none of that happened um every single one of those fairly obvious lessons which could have been taken from lacknall was missed 
or in some way ignored. And Chantel mentioned in the intro that I wrote a story before Cranfield about um, combustible cladding. And the reason we were looking into that stuff was because people would say regularly in the, the, the years between Lacknell House and Grenfell, Lacknell, the Lacknell House fire will happen again and it will happen at night. Sooner or later, dozens and dozens and dozens of people will be trapped and we won't know what to do. To so many people who, who, who were aware of this issue, what happened at Grenfell Tower was predictable um, and was predicted. Um, it, it was just not made a priority to prevent it happening again. Um, and so, yeah, so as you say, at the opening of the book, I kind of start with a description of what happened at Lackanall to try and trick the readers into thinking they're reading about Grenfell Tower because it's so similar. And then say, well, actually, that this hasn't been a description of Grenfell, it's been a description of Lackanall. Um, and it's supposed to kind of leave people with that um, sort of surprise that something so similar could have happened before and not been addressed. Sorry, what was that like? having breaking that story and then Grenfell happening for you, like seeing it so explicitly like that, like this is likely to happen and then seeing it, like you would work working on that story then seeing something like that happen. What was that like for you as a journalist? I mean, I don't know about as a journalist. Well, there's two ways. I mean, first of all, as a human being, like because, you know, when I woke up in the morning and I was like everyone else in, well, apart from the people who were actually <laughs> there in the community at night but the um i woke up in the morning and saw the pictures and so i knew two things straight away first of all this didn't have to happen i knew that straight away because that's literally the thing that people have been warning about they said we, we've covered lots of buildings with combustible materials for environmental reasons and that's all well and good but they're, they're gonna sooner or later they're gonna go up in a fire and i remember having that thought when someone said that to me who pretty much word for word said that to me before Grenfell and just imagining what it would look like if a whole tower block, the whole outside of a tower block was on fire and then just kind of dismissing the thought from my mind because it was like that's just that can't be possible like even though this person who knows what they're talking about says it is I just can't believe that things would be that bad and so seeing actually seeing that in real life was like this you can imagine like how like that would kind of you would just think is happened right and then also, I think I knew immediately, and I, I know this kind of doesn't sound like a huge thing, but I knew loads of people would be dead because I knew that the um, the advice would have been to stay put. So I, I knew as soon as I saw it, you know, obviously I'm sure lots of people could have come to that conclusion, but as soon as I was looking at those pictures, I was like, that's a mass grave. You know, I instantly knew that that, that would be, that people would have not got out because they would have been told to stay where they were. I don't think anyone in the country would have had like a non-emotional reaction to seeing those images for the first time. But yeah, for me, it kind of like was a real sort of shock. And then I think there's this thing that lots of people, I think I've heard so many people <laughs> say something like this is kind of, you start to ask yourself the question, okay, I've written a story about, but did I really do enough? You know, like I, I kind of knew that this was possible. Like was one, one story like, was I actually not asking enough questions about that? Should I have said more? I think so many people who had some kind of inkling that even some of the residents who complained to the TMO, I've heard them say, like, maybe I should have complained more. Maybe I should have, like, you know, raised these because I felt like there was something wrong with the tower. It wasn't safe. And did I ask enough? And so, so many people kind of carry that feeling with them um, to one degree or another. And I think the real tragedy is that sort of, like, introspection 
doesn't seem to apply to the people for whom, or many of the people for whom they actually really did have a chance to stop it. The whole mix of feelings in answer to your question, but some of those are the ones that kind of stick in my mind. Thanks so much for giving such an honest answer, Peter. Thank you. One of the things that struck me with the parallels between Vaknal and Grenfell is Vaknal was slated for demolition just like Grenfell was. And instead of demolishing the blocks like they first proposed, they regenerated the blocks with the cladding systems added now. The insulation is Kyoto protocols and reducing reducing emissions and increasing energy efficiency is the reason that's often proffered, but we know that it was aesthetic purposes in large part of Grenfell, right? But what um what was missed at Lacknall is that it continued a pace that you would have redevelopment projects where relatively safe buildings were made unsafe by attaching these cladding to it. Right. So it wasn't just that you had the missed opportunity to apply fire safety principles or apply the recommendations of the coroner in the instance of Lacknall, but there was an allowance of industry to continue to clad buildings that had once been compartmentalized and make it into a place where fire could penetrate perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, that goes way before Lacknall was, as, 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 I, as I know, you know, Dan, and it, it um, so yeah, in the, the, the sort of fifties and sixties, we built all of these high rise buildings, um, out of, uh, you know, mostly concrete and brick structures which don't burn um and set them up with a fire safety strategy which was based on that fact um so one staircase uh you know no uh fire alarms because they think this is a concrete structure the fire is going to stay where it starts it was actually in the kind of 1980s under Margaret Thatcher that the the rules under which those buildings in London were built were removed. New kind of sort of non-mandatory guidance is brought in instead. And obviously a lot of these buildings, concrete over time, it gets worse at retaining heat. So these buildings get colder as they age. And in the, 19, in the very early 1990s, the government ran a pilot scheme to see if they could improve the thermal efficiency of high-rise buildings by adding cladding to the outside. And they did a block in Nosley, which is in Merseyside. During that pilot process, uh, someone lit a fire outside Nosley Heights and um, in a bin, and the fire caught the cladding panels, and it took it all the way up 11 stories of the block in a couple of minutes. By the time the firefighters had got there, every every single flat was on fire. Unlike Grandfell, the fire doors functioned, so people got out. It didn't, it didn't sort of spread through the corridors in the way that it did at Grandfell Tower. When that fire was analysed, it's one of the things that came out of the inquiry, They there was a, a, a handwritten government memo which, which literally said they were going to play down the consequences of that, that fire because we can kind of read into it for ourselves. I suppose we have to the reasons why that was done. The government at, made an, at the time made an active decision not to make too big a deal out of that because there was a, a growth industry to clad these high rise blocks that would have been put on hold as a result of fire safety concerns if they had, is my conclusion at least. And you, you see that then repeated throughout the 2000s. There's, you know, I won't, I won't sort of go into all of the technical bits and pieces, but there, there, there were a couple of very specific instances where they could have changed regulations to, to, to ban combustible cladding materials. And 
the industry lobbied against it. It, it just it's, it's, it's black and white. They just say we won't be able to sell our products if you raise standards to this level. And so the government didn't. And that that led us to Lackman, where where six people died. But it should have stopped there. I think is is the point that that sort of chain of failures One result of in six deaths, three of them children, but are then allowed to be repeated again. One of the things I think is really um, important for us to clarify is uh, when we say the government, I mean, we're talking about a time period in which we're talking first, probably with the dismantling and deregulation, we're talking about Thatcher. Lessons that could and should have been learned and weren't implemented, we're talking about New Labour years. And then after the New Labour years, we see a further rapacious deregulation in uh, with the condemns and then the conservatives afterwards, right? So... A lot of these warning signs came while New Labour were in office and weren't actioned while New Labour were in office, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that the, probably the most stark one uh, was in 2002 when the government paid for a test that was carried out literally on the same cladding material, with ACM with a polyethylene 4 that's later used on Grenfell Tower. It's supposed to be a half an hour test. They had to terminate it after nine minutes because... Flames had gone 20 meters up into the air above the rig where they were running the test and they had to turn it off for the safety of the, the technicians in the laboratory. Um, they could at that point have tightened regulations to make sure that product is never used on another building in the UK ever again. And they don't. And that's in 2002. The, 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 the guy who's in charge of the department at the point is John Prescott. The prime minister is Tony Blair. This isn't a conservative government at all. And I think one of the kind of real insights from the Grenfell Tower inquiry is that the government as as a thing is kind of separate to the party that runs it. There is there is an institution which is the government which stays <laughs> in power. And it's sometimes the the um the change of political the, the, the people in charge don't even get to influence what that that machine is doing. Um but what what is also the case throughout those periods is the attitude towards regulation and the attitude towards industry is kind of consistent throughout all of those, throughout the entire period. There's no point at which we're saying actually health and safety is really important. Let's try and bring some fighter rules in to make sure that, you know, um, we're, we're controlling the way these corporations behave. Every stage is like, we need to free industry to innovate, to, to develop, to grow the economy. That, that's the, the dominant philosophy that governs that, that entire 30 year period, regardless of which political parties in power. It arguably increases a bit after 2010 with David Cameron, but it's it's the direction of travel that's going in the same direction. And there were muting of voices of dissent within this period as well. Right? It wasn't just that nobody was saying this and nobody could see it coming. There were a number of architects, there were people on parliamentary committees that were that were making these warnings that were muted. In this yeah, totally, totally. I mean, in 1999, there's a select committee where they hear from, and I'm not talking about kind of like you know, like radical ideas, industry experts and, and people from, say, the Fire Brigade Union or, or, or in that 1999 one, um, you know, technical experts who, who just are aware of these things. And not many people, certainly before Grenfell, had any idea about fire safety and high-rise buildings. This is a really niche topic. And so these people were saying, yeah, our standards are lower than elsewhere. They're, they're, we're, we're using a lot of combustible materials. We might have a problem. We kind of need to do something about it. Um, and they're not being listened to. I remember talking to one guy who said he, he went along to, um, these meetings for years and, um, was always trying to kind of get it taken more seriously. And he said in the end, 
I think in like 2004, he just went home. He was nearing retirement age, shredded every piece of all of his paperwork from all of the years and just said, I've, I've finished. I've, I've had enough. Like they just don't want to listen. They're not interested. Like I've tried. Um, and, and that was that because he, he was just pushing at a closed door. Is it as simple as they didn't do anything because of capital and because of money? Or do you think it's, it's more multifaceted than that? As in, is it, is it, just think about Dan's book as well. Like, is it about how we view the working classes or is it about how capital is accumulated and protected by those in power, by those who have got a vested interest? As I'm talking now, I'm now thinking about a conversation that I've had with Dan previously on the show about how this cladding issue should be a multi-class issue because there is this cladding on um, housing, which would be deemed considered more of quote-unquote value. Well, middle-class professionals yeah. living in, in, in some of these blocks, right? Jeremy Clarkson famously owns one of these blocks in Packham Lanes. Well, I mean, to take quite a good example, I think that the, the London Fire Brigade have announced today that they won't be bringing any prosecutions for a fire at New Providence Wharf, which is a block in Tower Hamlets, not far from where I'm seeing now, actually. It was at least three years, maybe more, after Grenfell. That block still had ACM cladding on the outside. And it also had a malfunctioning smoke ventilation unit, which meant instead of moving smoke out of the building, it just spread it around it. And the the, the residents were being absolutely shoved from pillar to post in terms of trying to get someone to take responsibility for that and take it off the building. Now, I've been to that development. It's got an underground car park with the most expensive of your cars that are worth more than my house. And it's full of people who work in Canary Wolf and that's probably their home when they're at work and they've got a massive house in the country. But <laughs> this issue has nearly made them victims of it. And so I think like it's it's a really complicated question that because there are class issues with Grenfell, undoubtedly. And it would be ridiculous to pretend that there weren't. Um and some of them are so obvious and so transparent that you kind of like you they're staring you in the face. Also, if you just make it a story that's only, that's just about one group of people suffering and everyone else being okay, you kind of miss the sort of darker position, which is if once regulations fell to the degree that they did, if you've stayed in a hotel, multi-story hotel before Grenfell, there's a very good chance you've slept a night in a building with ACM cladding on its walls. And and you could have been the victim of that. That's true for every listener of this podcast. Could have been a politician's daughter, you know, we we, we or a politician. I mean, they, they stay in these fancy hotels when they go to and, party conferences. And student accommodation as well, right? Yeah, so you, you did the film, Dan, about the um, the students in West London where they wasn't cladding, but they had such uh, serious fire safety defects that they had to empty the block in a single weekend, I think, get everybody out, find them some new accommodation. And in that building, there was those fire, there was known fire safety issues and people in wheelchairs being housed on the ninth and tenth floor with no idea how they get out in a fire. It can be a bit of a comfort blanket, I think, sometimes for the middle class to think, I can't be a victim of this. And in this instance, that isn't true. But equally, there are elements of this story which are very much about class and race. One of the things I think is really important to discuss at this moment is we have this call to retrofit insulation across the country, right? That comes mm. more from the ecological movements than anyone else, and therefore sections of the left. Unless there are caveats and strong caveats put on that that call, what we're going to see is practices similar to what led to Grenfell, right? So we have to have a certain 
non-combustible <laughs> insulation and retrofitting programs insulation that has to be made as our demand, right? Which is, I know we've discussed this privately, Pete, but so far this is falling on deaf ears. So. Off topic, but it's really, I think it's really relevant. I mean, if you followed the Grandfather's Tower Inquiry and you've looked at the behaviour of the two large insulation manufacturers that have been under the scrutiny of the inquiry, Kingspan and Celotex, I think something that is missed when we're talking about kind of environmental concerns, and this is true for insulation, but it's true for a lot of other things as well, is that companies will still profit from this. Something can be worth doing for, for, for good environmental reasons, but the companies that are going to profit from it don't care about those things. They care about their bottom line and positioning themselves to profit from that. And I think sometimes there's a kind of the left is, is unwilling to criticize or scrutinize even organizations that stand to profit from something they want to happen. Um, but that's an enormous mistake because the consequences really serious as we've seen and i mean i think like i also think with insulation you know the the the, the point the thing that's warming the planet up is is using gas to heat homes and you need to find a way of heating homes that doesn't increase the amount of carbon in the atmosphere but that's not the same necessarily as insulating a property like you can insulate a property and it can still feel cold and so you still leave the gas boiler on which incidentally was precisely what happened at grenfell tower no one after the cladding was fitted to the building that I've spoken to felt that their home was warmer and therefore put the heating on less. People felt actually that the homes were colder because the, the, the windows that they fitted were really poor and they let air come in and out like they were open because they had these huge gaps around them. Um, and so probably after that refurbishment, people were, were using more heating and we were warming the planet up even more. So I think people need to be really careful about being used as uh useful uh mouthpieces for organizations that actually care about making money and yeah sorry i'm going a bit off topic no um, not at all it's really important yeah. what was the most shocking week for you within the inquiry itself god um i think i don't know i mean i think there's there were so many that were shocking for so many different reasons i think as a as a theme i think i was always most shocked when like because i i could i could believe that people knew that there was a risk and i can believe that people knew their products were combustible and i could i could expect that people cut corners to save money and all of that sort of stuff didn't really surprise me i, I you know i wasn't I, i'm not saying it's it's okay but it wasn't surprising i think that, that what was really chilling was whenever there was something which kind of overtly said this might kill someone and yet that didn't seem to stop people doing what they were doing. Like, you know, now quite infamous document produced by someone in Iconic, which speculated about a fire in a tower block involving their product, killing 60 to 70 people in 2007. And I, I just sort of think, how can you write that, commit that to the page and not feel something about, we can't do this, you know? Like, I think there's one from Celotex, an internal document where they said, w w why does like a building control organization was refusing to sign their product off and they said, um, what's their problem? What is it? Do they just insure against, do they, do they also insure for life safety? And it's like, oh, so what you, <laughs> I, I kind of assume that people went into this with their eyes closed. You know, they, they were kind of willfully ignorant to the potential consequences. And in some instances, that just wasn't true. They, they, they weren't ignorant to the consequences and they were still doing it anyway. And so that, that was always when I was most kind of like breathtaking by what was being revealed. 
Um, but there, there was hardly a week of it that wasn't shocking in some way. So what I think is follows from that and the revelations of the Grenfell Inquiry is that you have to be eternally vigilant, right? And on one way, you can kind of take that as a dictum. Post-Grenfell, you have to. But what I found most shocking is just the extent to which the Grenfell residents were eternally vigilant and did ask all of the right questions in every conceivable way, whether through the Leaseholders Association or the Grenfell Compact, there was always a question of the stay-put policies, there was always a question of the materials, there was an attempt to have oversight over the materials that were being used. And if these things were granted, and if an independent inspection took place, as the residents asked for, if they weren't muted, there was still possibility that Grenfell could have been prevented, and it wasn't because of that culture of contempt. You heard you talk about that before, Dan, and I think it's, I, I completely agree. I mean, like, Leaseholders Action Group was still calling for an independent audit of the tower up until about two weeks, or even closer to the fire. I think within seven days of, of the building burning, they, they, were, they were asking the TMO for an independent audit, and they've been repeating those calls for seven years. In the case of Shah Ahmed, he spent seven years, like you say, very actively and I think the lesson from that is like, yeah, vigilance is one part of this, but it's also people need to be given rights and power. It's all well and good being vigilant and turning up at the meetings and raising these questions and sending these emails. But if, if, if the structure provides people like Eddie Defan and Shah Ahmed and, and everyone else in the tower who were raising questions with almost no status to influence what's going on, then there's a good chance chance that their efforts are going to be in vain if the organization is just determined not to listen to them or blocks them on their servers as they did yeah yeah yeah, indeed yeah we can go through the failures of state but i think what 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 is important here is that grenfell was a failure before as we've gone over in slight detail we have the failures of the event itself which was a stay put policy that was maintained for far too long the aftermath which is so considerable now that Mm. We probably are going to run out of time to talk about it, right? But what I would really like to talk about is a real failure of the state to really gradiate risk, right? To really understand or to disseminate within the broader population, right? And this particularly pertains to the fire safety scandal or fire safety crisis or however we want to discuss it. But when me and you first talked about this, Pete, I remember you said that it could be up to two thirds of medium to high rise blocks built within the last 20 years that could have some level of fire safety defects. First of all, has that number changed at all in your estimation? I think two, two-thirds of the ones built in recent times, yes. I think that's probably about right. Um, I think what <laughs> the, the ones I have numbers for show that three-quarters of the, the medium-rise buildings built after Grenfell used combustible insulation. So if three-quarters of the ones built after Grenfell used combustible insulation, it's pretty safe to say the ones built before were also using that kind of material. It hasn't, really. And the first conversation we really had was when the Australians had come across this issue off the back of the fires in internationally, not just Grenfell, but in places like Dubai and other places, where and China, where there's been serious cladding fires, they've now graded that risk, right? So there was a real government task force that was allocated to essentially grade that risk and then act to prevent a major catastrophe, right? And something like that was proposed by Inside Housing and by the cladding groups. When was that? 2018, 2019, right? 19, I think, yeah. And we're now in 2023, and that's still not been action to any degree, right? 
Um, I mean, is there anything you want to add on the current status of the building safety crisis and what the government have done? Yeah, I mean, as, like you say, you could you could do another kind of couple of hours on that, really. But I mean, just I think to build on what you're saying, like I think the problem that you've got is that you've got so many buildings that might that that you can't say they're perfect because the regulations below 18 meters were just non-existent. You could use pretty much anything you like, build a a, a multi-story block of flats. And so you've got lots and lots of buildings that might be at risk. There just needs to be some way to figure out this one is a potential next Grenfell. And this one is one where let's install some sprinklers and let's put some fire alarms in there and let's make sure anyone with disabilities has a plan to get out quickly. But apart from that, it's probably okay. And that has to come really from a central body like government. No one else can really do that. And what our government has always been unwilling to do is take that responsibility on itself. Every every stage of the cladding crisis, and even now where it's handling of it has got better, it still wants mortgage providers and insurers um, to make, or, or fire risk assessors now in its latest guidance to make that decision for it. And it links back to this kind of, this sort of, philosophy of the government being hands-off and kind of laissez-faire and not taking o- taking ownership and control. I think like one of the most interesting comments I, I, I've heard that in a, in a meeting quite not long after Grenfell, that idea was proposed. They said, we need to kind of, we need to say, if you've got this cladding on your building, you need to take it off. And if you've got this, you need to leave it there. And someone interrupted and said, well, we don't live in a Marxist country. Oh, and I don't, I don't know much. I don't know much about Marxism. But I don't think he said anything about leaving combustible cladding on the walls of fire rising. That's so interesting. Um, that is fascinating. Wow. I think right now that the, the good thing that's happened in the last year is that, that there's been a level of legal protection, which has meant that a lot of people who might have otherwise had to pay to fix these failures won't have to. And there's a, there's a much bigger and more serious effort from government to make developers, um, freeholders, and other companies that have contributed to the crisis pay um, because they resisted doing that for a long time. And that's good. Uh, it's undoubtedly good. But they still haven't taken that step of saying we will be the ones that decide whether a building A needs to get remediated, whether building type B doesn't. They won't do that. They still want to leave that to the market. And I don't think that this is a crisis that can be solved that way, really. it will. You're either going to end up in a position where someone has an incentive to consider the building risky because they don't want to have it as loan security if there's any risk at all, or you're going to end up in a position where they, they have an incentive to consider the building no risk because it's their property and they don't want to be responsible for doing the work to fix it. And it, until you kind of have someone step in and say, no, it has to be fixed or it mustn't, you don't need to fix this, then you're still going to just keep going round and round in circles somehow with this, the building safety issue and you know we, we are in a position now where a lot of leaseholders who, who might have been sort of bankrupt by these bills aren't going to be or probably aren't going to be um, but we're not fixing many buildings and we are still leaving these it's sort of it's become a kind of question of kind of like how do we get people's mortgage um, valuation back and that's I'm not trivialising that because for the people who are stuck in it that's a really really serious issue there's another question as well which is are we making the actually dangerous building safe and that one's not not something we made that much progress on unfortunately one of the reasons i asked the question is i mean when we first heard of these stories we'd say that another grenfell was in the post we'd say that 
just like the lacnal, the warning was it could happen tomorrow, right? And mm. do you? I mean, do you do you still feel that in your in in your core? I don't know, to be honest. I think you look at the fires that have happened since Grenfell, um, and like only in October there was a fire in a um, and it didn't make enough of the news for what it was, but I think this is something that really does scare me is um an office block that had been converted for um uh temporary housing so almost exclusively mothers and and some quite young some teenage children living in this converted office block and it had combustible cladding on the outside which hadn't been fixed and a series of other fire safety defects it had a waking watch in there and there was a big fire there and like one woman or two two women and one child had to be rescued by firefighters and given smoke hoods to get out of the building. Um, but it happened in the middle of the day. And if that fire, that exact same fire in that exact same building happens at three three a.m. in the morning, I don't I don't see that ending in anything other than mass fatality. Um, and if it could happen in October, it can happen tomorrow. The, these fires they tend to happen on hot days in the summer, hot nights in the summer. We had a forty degree day last year when the, the London Fire Brigade was stretched beyond any capacity it's had before um, to deal with kind of grassland fires and wildfires and all that sort of stuff. If a tower block had gone up on that day, it would have been hellish because they not only one thing Grenfell had was a, a, a huge number of firefighters and fire engines. I mean, they, they made catastrophic mistakes, as the inquiry shown. But imagine if they also had six other fires around London that, that, that were burning that needed to be put out. I think uh, I get this kind of jump in my stomach every time, every now and again, I log on to Twitter and I've got six DMs, a whole load of mentions. I've got a couple of WhatsApps of people sending me pictures of a building burning. You know, it happens a lot. And sooner or later, we're going to stop getting lucky and someone's going to get stuck inside. Thank you so much. Honestly, like this is such a, it's such an interesting emotional political important conversation i just want to thank you both for how much you've sort of shared and spoken about in the detail i've learned so much um one thing that i just wanted to ask that i've been thinking about more recently is what would justice look like in the context of all these things that we've been talking about and what would equity and housing in relation to cladding look like one of the most basic things in this is there's a story that when Grenfell happens you have a, it's it's a seismic event in Britain and any number of things can happen off the back of it but the grief is so much and the stakes are so high that you end up with a broad political consensus existing within the bereavement survivors to kind of trust in the mechanisms of state and to do go through the inquiry and to do what's necessary because if they do it this way, and if they play by the rules, then fairness comes to them. Right? And one of the big promises that's made is the implementation of the first phase inquiry recommendations. right? And at the time that it comes out, Boris Johnson makes an ironclad promise that he's going to implement all of them, and implements none of them. And one of the most serious that remains unimplemented at this moment in time is personal evacuation procedures, or PEATs which ensures that a disabled resident in the high-rise block has a evacuation procedure that is worked on between the local authority and local emergency services that would mean that they can be located and saved. And that doesn't exist, right? 
across this country at this moment in time, you still have disabled people being housed in situations by which if things go wrong, there is no saving them. And that existing before COVID, post-COVID, when we know what happened in nursing homes and what what we called it in uh, squad army and Robbie is this is organized neglect, mm. right? Now, what, one of the key things that I think has to come off the, off the back of grandfather is that we, as a society, address that organized neglect, that we root it out. And one of the key areas we can do that is in things like the state put policy where it doesn't work and with things like personal evacuation procedures for us to at least have a frame of mind by which we aren't consigning people to death when things go wrong. Because as Peter said, right, if there was a serious fire last year when, when it's a 42 degree day, we've stretched, right? And there were plenty of points at which we know within our current system that we are stretched to breaking point as is. So we can't really focus on if things don't go the worst. We have to work on the basis that things can be the worst. And if they are, we don't learn from Lackham and we haven't learned from Grandpa. And I think that's the real big problem that we have here. Not loads to add to what you said there on, on Peeps, to be honest. I mean, I think it's, you know, the government has said, I think, to use their words, that it's not proportionate to implement Peeps. 15 residents, 15 of the victims at Grandpa Tower were disabled. You can add to that a further number of people who would have left if they were alone, but stayed because they they, they wanted to, to. They would never have left their their mum or their sister or and whoever it was who couldn't get out. And then you can add the eighteen um, children as well. Right? And you, you say, well, what is proportionate then? No, what what um what has to happen? You know, I called my book, show me the bodies, because the the excuse um given for not tightening fire safety rules before Grenfell was that fire safe, fire deaths um, were not high enough to justify regulatory action because fire deaths had been falling since the 1980. The, the civil servant who uh, was responsible for the guidance allegedly said to a campaigner, show me the bodies when he asked for, for, for more change. But that suggests that once people do die, That's when you're... You, will, you will see change. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a problematic approach because it means you will only ever get change if people, um, if there's a mass fatality incident, which pretty much guarantees one. But what do you call it if you have a mass fatality incident and we still say it's not proportionate, we still say it's not worth changing? Um, and, it, you know, I hear people say things like, you know, oh God, it will take a catastrophe or it will take a disaster for these things to change. And I kind of roll my eyes now because I go, well, We've no, had because you'll have, you'll have a catastrophe and you'll have a disaster and nothing will change because the status quo is capable of assisting, even on a thing as fundamental as does a disabled person have a plan to get them out of the building in a fire. That policy does challenge a few things. You know, it challenges the sort of decision to keep housing people, offering people houses who are on social housing waiting lists high up in, in high rises when they're, you know, they might struggle to um, to navigate the building, you know, and it challenges the idea that we don't build and adapt homes for people to live in more comfortably. I think also just to add on your, your, your point about justice, just really quickly is like, um, you know, it's difficult to kind of talk, name names <laughs> for, 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 for pretty obvious legal reasons. But I think a fundamental thing that has to happen is, is whether, whether there are eventually prosecutions for manslaughter or whatever. I think there have to be prosecutions of individuals. Okay. That's crucial. I mean, after, after Lacknall, um, the only prosecutions were kind of fire safety act. Um, breaches by Southwark Council. And so Southwark Council was prosecuted and fined £500,000, which ends up being one part of the government paying another part of the government some money 
you know, how is that supposed to feel like justice? I think, you know, the Grenfell Tower inquiry has, has shown that Barrister in Charge has concluded that every single death at Grenfell Tower was avoidable. He said the evidence, the evidence is, is enough to show that. He said that even before the report's been written. If that's the case, somebody is accountable for it. And those people need, those people, not just companies and, and, and broader. I mean, that could happen too. And it, it, I'm not saying it wouldn't be a good idea, but if you, if you don't see individuals prosecuted, then I think that the, that will never, ever, ever look or feel like justice would be justice. I think I did know that all of the deaths at the Grenfell Tower fire were avoidable, but now we have media, institutions, reports, individuals stating it as clear as that. It does, do you feel like, just sort of summarising slightly, we might be in a new era of how we discuss Grenfell or how it's how it's understood? The crimes of Grenfell are so manifold and go over so many years that a real reckoning is almost impossible to conceive of, right? Because it it begins with deregulations that allow this to happen and the warning signs that were missed, right? And the thing is that every local authority and actually every private private owner who put this stuff on their buildings could theoretically be criminally culpable because the difference is whether the fire started or not, right? And so once you really nationalise and understand the gravity of this story, it's very difficult to put in its place. What is very clear, though, is that there were people who knew the risks and did it anyway. And one of the key things here is that within the corp- within the corporations, Orconic knew the risks and still targeted the sales to that local authority. That local authority knew it, it was cutting costs and with the Veggie Centre and with the school it built, didn't cut those costs. And actually, Grenfell had far worse fire safety than much smaller buildings that were done around the same time. So the thing is that we can see a real culture of neglect and a real contempt built into so many of the things that happened at Grenfell that I think it would be an absolute catastrophe for that not to lead to at least a real moral case being made against these individuals and, and companies. Just just to add to that, Dan, because I completely agree with what you're saying there, but also I think one of the ways I look at it is on the first point, what you were saying about a lot of this stuff was done by so many people, how do you kind of pin, pin one or two down? Is that you, it's, it's very natural and people understand why you treat causing death by dangerous driving from dangerous driving. If you, if you go at 90 miles an hour down the motorway and you just get flashed by a speed camera, you get a ticket. But if you go at 90 miles an hour down the motorway doing exactly the same thing and cause an accident which kills a child, you go to prison. So just because other people were being as reckless without consequences isn't a defense in my mind from a moral position for the people to do it. And I don't know, criminal lawyers will be able to give a kind of complex answer about whether or not that's a defense that they, that you could use in a, a crown court, but from a, a kind of just a, a moral question. Actions that were being, reckless actions that were being done by lots of people. Only one of them had the consequences of Grenfell, but that is the one, therefore, that should be punished because those consequences matter and create a demand, a, 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 a need in the victims to see people punished and justice done. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying about that there are certain instances where there was knowledge. And, uh, you know, sorry, it's slightly kind of like, again, um, just, uh, a slightly separate point, but I think one that people sometimes forget 
there's a lot of comparisons between Grenfell and kind of previous tragedies where no one's been held to account, um, especially like Hillsborough. Um, and one of the things that's different about Grenfell is it happened in the digital era. Hillsborough didn't. Hillsborough happened when, if there was a paper trail of any sort, it can be chucked in a shredder and disappear forever. Whereas Grenfell happens in a time when everything's recorded on email and that those records last forever. Um, and so there's, there's a huge mountain of evidence about what people did and why they did it. And that must count for something. I can't see how it doesn't unless if the, if the will is there, then this has to end in criminal prosecution. And that's really the question now is the will there? And we'll find out in the next couple of years and beyond. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much, Pete. Listeners, um, you definitely need to be following. Hopefully, you're already following Dan. Um, make sure you check out his new book, Robbie Shilliam, um, Squalor. And of course, Pete, you've got to be following Pete on socials if you're on them, always reporting on all these issues. And of course, check out his new book, Show Me the Bodies, as well. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pete. Thank you so much, listeners, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.